My name is Erin Heliard. I'm Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera and welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. We inaugurated our podcasts with a brief history of the incantation scene and today I want to continue our journey in discovering scene types in Baroque opera. I want to talk about one of my favourite scene types today and that's the sleeping or slumber scene. It's a fascinating and beautiful genre that features a sleeping character and it allows the composer and librettist to explore and theatricalize really interesting elements of human behavior and consciousness. I've always been highly moved by slumber scenes because I've suffered from pretty bad insomnia on and off for most of my life. So I guess I, I very strongly identify with depictions of sleep in music. I find it very affecting. Also, it seems to draw out the very best from composers and librettists as it's somnolent and languid and calming. I find, it, I find it very relaxing. The slumber scene was, like all scene types in opera, taken from spoken drama. Here, a sleeping character was often able to either talk in their sleep and give away secrets, which could be overheard by others, or the sleeper themselves was put in a position of great vulnerability in which an atmosphere of impending violence or drama might be generated. When the first opera composers added music into the mix, however, the sleeping scene took on a heightened psychological hue. The sleeping scene opens up lots of possibilities for the composer. Often sleep was evoked or invoked with beguiling hypnotic musical gestures and phrases. And we call these kinds of songs or arias lullabies. Often the characters sing in a low, hushed register with very long notes that seem to simulate the slowed-down physiology of a sleeping person. And sometimes the composer will put sleep-like figures in the orchestra as a kind of soundtrack and leave the characters themselves to sing recitative or speech-like music in hushed tones over the top. The slumber scene was popular in the opera house in that it often hushed a noisy audience with the extreme effects of dark lighting and soft instruments. The slumber scene in opera explored highly contrasting themes of potential violence, of love, of eroticism. And as the sleeping character often spoke in their sleep, these scenes often reveal important information, sometimes misunderstood by a character, or it unveiled a disguise, or it imparted truthful information. So slumber scenes could increase or decrease dramatic tension, or in fact did both at once in that wonderful way that only can happen in opera. So slumber scenes are important as pivoting devices for not only composers but librettists as well. The decrease in dramatic tension comes from the lulling sounds of the music itself, but suspense is generated too as we wait for the inevitable and dramatic interruption to this beautiful lull in the action. As with everything in opera, it was first invented and perfected by the Italians before being exported all across Europe. The French adored the slumber scene and they even gave it their own special name, the sommeil. Today, we'll chart the journey of the slumber scene from its origins in Venice and explore its later developments too, all the way to Rameau and Handel. Tarquinio Marula from 1636, as performed by Anna Reinholdt and Thomas Dunford. Now, it's not for the Opera House, but that piece was rather for private worship, and it's a lullaby for the baby Jesus. Marula calls the piece a ninonanna, which is the Italian word for lullaby. All of the words associated with sleep in the theatre are themselves onomatopoeic. Ninonanna, slumber, lullaby, sommeil. All these words have double consonances. The L's and the N's and the M's are doubled and elongated, as if we're slow and reluctant somehow to let the words leave our mouths. 
these onomatopoeic qualities are there probably because lullabies were songs designed to lull a child to sleep. The word lullaby comes from the Middle English lull and bye-bye, which is adorable. And the Italian name for a lullaby is Nino Nanna. It's a sort of comforting and hypnotic duo of words that are based on ninare, which means to sleep. By the middle of the 17th century, the slumber scene already had a long history of being used on the Opera House stage. One of its earliest and most memorable uses is in Monteverdi's great masterpiece, The Coronation of Popea, from 1643. Taking its cue from spoken theatre, the slumber scene in Popea facilitates the final denouement when Ottone attempts to stab Popea as she sleeps. Monteverdi himself had actually written to his colleague Alessandro Struggio in a discussion about musical imitation about something he called Armonia imitanti il sonno, which means music that suggests sleep. The slumber scene of Popea imitates sleep in two different ways. First, it depicts Popea's drowsiness. Listen in the following excerpt to Popea, sung here by Helen Sherman, how her vocal line descends, interrupted by rests, as if she's actually falling asleep. Second, her nurse Analta, sung here by Canaan Breen, sings a lullaby to aid her sleeping. Now this is music which imitates sleep, but also encourages a hypnotic, lethargic state in the listener, and of course on Popea. We have a repetitive, circular melody within a very small range, with very long notes held at the final cadences, with lots of repetition played by soft instruments in the continuo group. Here in this excerpt, also for the lirone, which is a stringed instrument capable of playing chords, a gorgeous instrument, and you'll hear it accompany Analta immediately after Popea falls asleep. It's a stunning scene, and it shows what a great composer such as Monteverdi can do with such a scenario. Ma se arrivi a discendere alle corone, 
That was Helen Sherman as Popeya, with Kane and Breen as Alnalta, from the Pinchgut Opera 2017 production of Coronation of Popeya. You also heard the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself at the organ and harpsichord. Kanan, who sang that exquisite lullaby, sending Popeya off to sleep, uh, won a Helpman Award in that year for his performance in this role. He's one of the greatest artists I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And another artist who I equally hold in such high esteem is the wonderful and incomparable Laura Vaughan, who was playing the Lirone and also the Gamba in the excerpt you just heard. She's been a part of the Orchestra of the Antipodes since its inception, and she joins me now to talk about the extraordinary instrument she plays, the Lirone. You're one of the most amazing refined musicians I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Laura, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Erin. And it is great to talk to you from down here in Melbourne in the safety of my own music studio. <laughs> um, you Now, you and Donald were actually one of the first people to be part of the Melbourne Digital Concert Hall. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We were um, incredibly fortunate to be able to uh, strut our stuff to an empty Athenaeum theatre, which was strange, but um, also completely fabulous and good on Melbourne Digital Concert Hall for their initiative. It's just amazing. Oh, that's great. And you're keeping busy in, um, in isolation? Yes, all, always. I mean, it's one of the nice things. I'm a, a viola da gamba player, largely, and um, there is an enormous solo repertoire of music for the viola da gamba, so it's been a bit of a chance to um, sink my teeth into some of that, which has been great fun. And um, I hear that you're, you're just in the process of trying to get some money together for a solo album of, of Lyra Vile music, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Exactly. So I thought, well, what better time um, to uh, finally uh, sit down by myself in a nice acoustic and record some of this repertoire than right now. And so this is a, uh, it's a bunch of very quirky uh, repertoire from 17th century England. And it's for viola da gamba that uses a whole lot of different tunings for the instrument, um, which is great fun. So you get all these different colours and you get all sorts of fun titles with the pieces like tickle the minikin and see the building and um, you just go, what on earth does that even mean? But the music's fantastic, so I can't <laughs> wait to, re to record that. I love all that kind of English music. And look, when you start uh, doing your fundraising, do let us know because Pinchgut, I know that a lot of our audience who love watching and hearing you play during performances would love to support you. So let us know. Oh, thank you. Now, Laura, we've been talking today um, in my podcast about slumber scenes, which is great. So I've been going through all the beautiful lullabies and the somme that Pinchgut have done. And you are featured in all the Italian music playing this magnificent instrument, which is quite simply my favourite stringed instrument called a lirone. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners um, what that instrument is and um, how you play it. Absolutely. So the Lirone is an instrument, so it's a stringed instrument that you play with a bow, and it doesn't quite look like any other modern string instrument. In size, it's probably like a teeny tiny little cello, about maybe two-thirds the size of a, of a full cello, um, and it has lots and lots of strings. So um, my particular instrument has 13 strings, um, and they're all playing strings, so you play all of them. In the past, so this is an instrument that was around in largely in Italy um, from the early 1500s up to probably the latest music you'd find that would use it would be 1700, but especially around the time of Monteverdi. Um, so those instruments uh, in Italy at the time had between 11 and up to 16 strings. And it says a few drone strings that hang off the side. Uh, you bow at least four strings together at the same time. So it is a chordal bowed string instrument. So as such, we are a member of the Continuo team along with the, the lutes and the harpsichord. The Lerone provides this gorgeous shimmering halo of chords. So it's, a, it's an extraordinarily beautiful effect. So it's just bowed harmony. It's amazing, Laura. And you are, of course, one of the greatest exponents of the Lerone in the world, I would say. Apparently. Well, Wiki, Wikipedia thinks so, so it must be true. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> it's funny, Laura, I know a couple of descriptions of the Lerone, like Agarazzi, I know of his description of it. He talks about 
you have to sort of bow it with long sonorous strokes and that it was a chordal instrument. But it's true that there were different tunings, weren't there? Like Pretorius and Mersenne, they, they document different kinds of tuning. That's right. And so it's an interesting instrument. So it, it got very strong ties to mythology, particularly the figures of Orpheus and Apollo. And it comes from um, an even older bowed string instrument called the, the lira de braccio, so the, the a lyre that you played on the show, on the on your shoulder, um, which was also a chordal bowed instrument, but more like a big violin size. And that was often used up to the 1500s and into the 1500s for people who were accompanying themselves reciting epic poetry that sort of thing so um, the Lirone is basically a, a bigger a blown up version of the Lira de Braccio and uh, as such it has really strong associations with accompanying the voice um, which is why it's such a wonderful instrument to use as an operatic continuo instrument as I said it's a, it's a shimmering it's heavenly and it's halo effect and while it's associated with mythological figures it suits itself absolutely beautifully to the sort of slumbrous sleepy effects in these um, sleeping scenes like you've just heard. Exactly, yeah. Now, whenever I've heard you play it, I mean, it's such a magical effect. I had a friend who used to call it the um, the tear machine, the sort of this, uh, <laughs> you Absolutely. know, that it just, it's this machine that it just makes the hairs on the back of your neck r- rise up and it's so, it's so beautiful. And I know that when we've played together in Pinch Cut Productions, I, I often, I mean, we talk about these things obviously in rehearsal, but it suits exactly these slumber scenes, very soft, intimate scenes, but also um, like laments, you know, with the repeating ground basses accompanying the voice and being this Orphic instrument, it's extraordinary instrument. And, and how did you learn to play it, Laura? I'm uh, primarily a viola de gamba player and probably in terms of an instrument that you can jump to the Lirone from, the, the, the viola de gamba technically is one of the most similar, um, the Lirone being a, a fretted instrument like the viola de gamba and with a, basically, a, as far as we know, an underhand bow hold like the viola de gamba. I was actually asked to give the instrument a try um, by our friends at the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra originally. Oh, great, who, yeah. Yes, um, who have an instrument as well. And many, many years ago, um, they said, look, we've got this instrument, but no one can play it. Uh, so I said, I'm sure I can play that. And I took it home and I went, holy moly, um, what are these strings even supposed <laughs> to be tuned to? Uh, so I did a lot of reading and I uh, worked I worked it out myself as best I could uh, to which what, what ended up being pretty right actually. Um, then I took a trip over to the UK. Oh, it seems like distant past when one could just jump on a plane and do do that. Yes. Um, so I went over to the UK to spend some time with the world's foremost expert on the Lirone, which is Erin Headley, not to be confused with our own Erin Helliard, Erin <laughs> Headley, who is a completely fabulous, amazing musician. And she is, I would say, sort of single-handedly responsible for reviving the instrument, really, um, in the 1970s, 1980s. And and so she she gave me a few more tips and said, yes, this is how I do it. This is how I've worked out. But the instrument had such a long um, period where just nobody played it at all. So um, really from the, I'd say, early 1700s right up till at least the 1970s, it just was not played at all. Nobody made them. There are very, very few original surviving Lirones um, in existence. So a lot of the information we have about the instruments themselves is from what um, people wrote about them at the time in the 1600s um, mainly, and also paintings, lots and lots and lots of paintings with Lirones in them. That's right. And all these writers exactly describing their, their effects. It's so funny you mentioned Erin Headley's name, Laura, because <laughs> when, I, when I first moved to Montreal, I was continually called Erin Headley because she was the, um, you know, sort of early music expert. I think she must have worked in, um, in Canada or the, the East yes. Coast at some point. And so everyone would say, <laughs> everyone would send me emails for Erin Headley. And I was like, I'm not Erin Headley. I'm Erin Helliard. And so, yes, I, she's a wonderful musician and scholar in fact she's um written quite a bit on the Lirone. yes she has i also personally found that she was very generous with her time and um it was just fascinating to talk with her and play with her um on this on this completely archaic but 
rather amazing instrument. Laura, it's so wonderful to talk to you today and I look forward to seeing you in person in the near future when we can play the Lerone again. <laughs> Hooray, yes, thank you, Erin. Thanks, Laura. From Monteverdi's coronation of Poppea onwards, slumber scenes proliferated in Venetian operas. A slumber scene is central in Sacrati's huge hit La Finta Pazza. In that opera, the sleeping scene triggers the denouement, just as it did in Monteverdi's Poppea, as it facilitates Achilles to express his love for Deodamia. In Monteverdi's Return of Ulysses, the title character awakes from a slumber after he has been transported home to Ithaca. Chesty's great masterpiece, Orantea, from 1656, also has an extended sleeping scene, which lasts for three scenes. And in Boretti's Ercole in Tebe, which is from 1671, we have more elaborately accompanied slumber scenes, now with luscious string accompaniments. And it goes without saying that the great instigator and repository of operatic conventions, Cavalli's Giazzone, which we discussed in my first podcast, has not one, but three sleeping scenes. Isifile and Giazzone each fall asleep twice, and Medea once, but all for very different purposes. The first slumber scene in Giazzone has Isifile's fatigue washing over her very much like Poppea. Cavalli indicates her initial fainting spell with a strong dissonant chord, and then she sings, My senses are failing, my heart weakens in my breast, my footsteps falter, and from weariness I fall upon the ground. Isifile is here sung in this excerpt by Miriam Allen. Have a listen to Anthea Cotti on cello in the continuo. She's improvising a kind of fating effect on the cello to support Isifile's text. This is the kind of performance practice you might expect Venetian musicians doing extemporaneously to add and support the drama. All of these excerpts from Giazzone are from our 2013 Pinch Cut production with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself at the organ and harpsichord. Here's Miriam Allen as Zifile. <laughs> As Isifile lays on the ground unconscious, her servant, Oreste, enters. In a nice comic touch, he explains how glad he is to be off a boat and on land. He then spies Isifile, who he has a soft spot for. He's in love with her. As Isifile lies asleep, she speaks to herself, as was common in these slumber scenes. And she speaks erotically of the love she still holds for Giazzone. Oreste overhears all this and pretends to be Giazzone. We then have a dialogue between the unconscious Isifile dreaming and the aroused but cautious Oreste. At one point he says, Ah, such fair words, each revealing our desires to the other quite openly. Is this still delirium? Which of us is dreaming and which of us is awake? This musing on what is real and what is illusion really underscores the liminal nature of the slumber scene. Oreste highlights for us the real nature of its popularity for an audience keen on novel effects that play with our expectations. He tries to steal a kiss, but Isifile awakens. The scene ends with Isifile asking what news Oreste brings of Giazzone. Oreste says that Giazzone has taken another lover. Isifile initially swoons, but then, remembering her royal status, rouses herself to action and revenge. Such a wonderful character is Ifile and sung superbly by Mary Mallon. Let's hear this slumber scene now. It's Act 1, Scene 12 of Cavalli's Giazzone with David Greco as Oreste and Miriam Allen as Isifile. <laughs> Io <laughs> 
Zithile and David Greco as Oreste with the Orchestra of the Antipodes with myself at the harpsichord and organ. The second slumber scene in Giazzone is between Medea and Giazzone himself, and it is a beautiful extended scene in which the two lovers lie down in a sweet and warm grove underneath gentle breezes, and they fall asleep in each other's arms. After this exquisite scene, which was really just an excuse for beautiful music and special effects, Zithile discovers Giazzone and reprimands him for his inconstancy. Here's David Hansen as Giazzone and Celeste Lazarenko as Medea. Listen to the repetitive musical effects of this lullaby-like duet, those halting phrases separated by slow breaths. Hear the yawning and hypnotic effect Cavalli's able to create. Warm eroticism and languor are musically mingled together here to astonishing effect. (laughs) 
The last sleeping scene in Giazzone is dramatically similar, once again, to Monteverdi's Poppea and some of the other operas I've already mentioned. In Act 3, Scene 17 of Giazzone, Ageo attempts to murder the sleeping Giazzone, but is prevented from doing so by Isifile, and this precipitates the denouement. Slumber scenes were popular in Venetian opera houses for decades for the reasons we've just outlined. And of course, soon others in Europe saw how beautiful the effect could be. Although many Venetian traditions were not appreciated by the French, Lully and his librettist Quinault clearly accepted the sleep scene type. Lully introduced the slumber scene to France in a work called Les Amants Magnifiques in 1670. The French called the slumber scene a sommeil, which just literally means a sleep. The third intermed of Les Amants Magnifiques begins with a ritonelle pour les flûtes, so a ritonello for the flutes, which is followed by a beautiful vocal trio called Dormez, Dormez, Beaux yeux, Sleep, Sleep, Beautiful Eyes. Now the source for this is clearly a trio called Dormite Belli Occhi, which is exactly the same words as the French trio, from a wonderful work which I hope to do with Pinchgut soon called uh, Orfeo by Luigi Rossi, which was actually performed in Paris in 1647. So Lully must have heard this work in Paris and then copied it, but made it exquisitely French uh, in the translation. Here's an excerpt from the Rossi opera. Lully's Sommeil, the very first French slumber scene. performers there for the Rossi excerpt we had Lorenza Donadini, Caterina Iora and Alice Rossi uh, with I Barocchisti conducted by Diego Fasolis and for the Lully excerpt we had Jean-Francois Lombard, Jérôme Billy and Virgile Ancelli with Les Paladins directed by Jérôme Correas. French sommeil differed from their Italian counterparts mainly in the preference for more than one voice. And also, there's an increased participation by the instruments of the orchestra. At its most simple, the French sommeil consists of an extended prelude followed by an air, the sommeil itself. The prelude was often scored for flutes or recorders, so soft wind instruments with strings. It's often written in a slow duple meter and often uses quaver figures in conjunct motion which, when slurred in pairs, permeate the air, sort of like perfume. And this is a sort of dia, dia, dia figure, often. At its most complex, uh, sommeil may be an entire scene made up of a prelude, an air, and vocal ensembles. Often there are trios of sleep deities, followed by a dance and a chorus. Now, the most famous example of a French extended sommeil comes from Lully's Attis of 1689. This extraordinary scene became the model for all the big theatrical sommeil in French operas of the 18th century. We call scenes like the sommeil from Attis divertissement. It's a term that was used at the time to describe a kind of self-enclosed scene within a larger stage work. Often, divertissement were pleasing but non-essential, a kind of dramatically neutral ornament. But divertissement could also be integral to the dramatic mood and action. They're simply self-contained in that they succeed in sustaining a single prevailing mood rather than presenting contrasting and opposing moods. Divertissement could be battle scenes or village fairs or weddings or funerals. But sommeil were much loved as divertissement because the supernatural element of dreams and sleep could come into play. 
and often those dreams were personified by singers, members of the chorus. The protagonist is often completely unconscious during these divertissements, and so the sommeil offers a kind of theatrical window into his or her unconscious. They're extraordinary scenes that work so well when you're in the theatre, and it's a remarkable example of how the French were able to transform and adapt Italian practice to their own spectacular ends. After Atis, sommeil elements were widely copied, uh, not only by Lully, but other composers as well. We find beautiful sommeil in Lully's Percé of 1682, also his Amadis from 1684, and his great contemporary Colas, a very uh, unknown and neglected composer, Colas wrote a beautiful sommeil in his work uh, Fetis et Pelé from 1689. Détouche, another extraordinary French contemporary of Lully, wrote a beautiful sommeil in his Issey from 1697. There's another sommeil in Monteclair's Yepte. And of course, we now move to Rameau. His very first opera, Hippolyte Arrecy, has an extraordinary sommeil in Act 5, Scene 3. But his most famous sommeil was from his Dardanus of 1739. This particular sommeil became especially celebrated. It occurs at the beginning of Act 4. As Dardanus sleeps, he's visited by Venus and her attendant dreams, who perform a divertissement. This includes a very famous trio des songes, or a trio of dreams, and these slurred pairs of notes pay homage to the great Atis sommeil. The dreams exhort Dardanus to confront his foe, the sea monster. Let's listen now to that scene from our 2005 Pinchcut production of Dardanus. The trio of dreams are sung here by Miriam Allen, Dan Walker, and Corin Bone. You'll also hear in the background the beautiful chorus of Cantillation and the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by Anthony Walker. You'll hear the familiar rocking, repetitive, and hypnotic sounds that we associate with these scenes. And the French word for lullaby was, of course, berceuse, which refers to a cradle being rocked. You'll hear in this sommet a sort of alternation between two pitches as sung by the chorus, and that suggests a, a sort of gentle rocking or a sort of soft breathing. It's a kind of wash of somnolence.
these rocking effects, these repetitive phrases, these slurred pairs, these long-held meditative notes, all of these qualities that we first heard in Venetian theatre in the 1640s persisted in musical imitation for a remarkably long time. One can hear all of these effects, for example, in a scene that's not technically a slumber scene or a sommeil, but is rather a depiction of Somnus, the god of sleep himself. This comes from Handel's opera-like oratorio, Semele. Juno, angered at her husband's adultery, has ordered her messenger Iris to discover where Semele's been taken. Iris reports that Jupiter has built his new mortal lover an elaborate palace guarded by fierce dragons that never sleep. The enraged Juno swears vengeance and hurries to visit Somnus, the god of sleep, to demand his aid in putting to sleep the dragons that do not sleep. He's reluctant to stir and he sings, Leave me the loathsome light, receive me silent night. Lethe, why does thy lingering current cease? Oh, murmur, murmur me again to peace. The river Lethe, of course, flowed through the cave of Hypnos and the underworld, and all those people who drank from it experienced complete forgetfulness or unconsciousness. Handel utilises all of the effects we've just mentioned to depict the drowsy god. And in another masterstroke, he has the god fall asleep again at the end of the B section. We don't get a da capo aria, as we might expect. And this contributes to the realism of the scene. Somnus just can't summon the energy to repeat it. Here is that moment from Pinchgut's very first recording and very first production all the way back in 2002 with Stephen Bennett as Somnus, the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker. In the spirit of slumber scenes, lullabies and sommets, I will leave you here so you too can fall asleep along with Somnus. May the dread god of insomnia keep well away from you and may slurred notes and soft instruments sing you to restful sleep, dear Pinchgut supporters. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.